Have you ever tried to help youth with their mental health? That's a tricky road to travel. I have to tell you about an inspiring presentation we recorded with the one and only Jody Moore. Yes, that life coaching Jody Moore. A few years ago, she recorded a fantastic presentation covering topics like normalizing tough feelings with youth, a more positive understanding of stress, how to minimize shame, and mastering the skill set of empathy and better understanding anxiety. I want you to see this presentation as soon as you finish this podcast episode. You can go to leadingsaints.org 14, and this will get you access to the entire video library at no cost for 14 days. Jody's presentation is in the Mentally Healthy Saints library, and you'll be a better leader or parent when you finish it. Again, go to leadingsaints.org 14, or check out the show notes for the link. All right, let's go around the room, do some introductions. I'll start. So my name is Kurt Frankham. I am the executive director of Leading Saints, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And we are dedicated, you know, have a mission here to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, me personally, I live in Stansbury Park, Utah, which is in Tooele County. I grew up in West Valley City and have been running Leading Saints really since 2010 when it started out as a hobby blog. 2014 is when the podcast started, and now we are over 10 million downloads. And uh, man, we're glad that you are now one of those downloads. Let's jump in. Hello, Leading Saints audience. This is Kurt Frankham, the host of the Leading Saints podcast. And we're back for another episode, and we're welcoming back Jennifer Roach. This is her third time on the Leading Saints podcast. And if you're not familiar with Jennifer, let me tell you about her. She is a mental health therapist and researcher on issues involving sexual abuse in a church context. She has spoken on the topic at the FAIR conference, which I just heard her speak this past uh, FAIR conference in 2023. She is this year's recipient of the John Taylor Defender of the Faith Award, as well as the recipient of the first B.H. Roberts Foundation Historical Research Grant. She has appeared on many podcasts, and her writings sometimes appear in the Deseret News, Jennifer lives in American Fork, Utah, and has a mental health practice near the BYU campus in Provo. Now, as I mentioned before, she has been on the podcast two other times with the episode titled Four Reasons Why Bishops Should Be Meeting with Youth. And then last year, she talked about reporting abuse, church helpline, and the bishop. And she's done even more research around this concept of sexual abuse as it relates to our faith tradition. And what she found is so encouraging because there's so many claims out there. Sometimes you hear things in the news and you wonder, "Ah, are we just missing it? Like, I'm afraid to hold any intense youth activity or engage with the youth because I don't know what if something goes wrong or there's an accusation or whatnot. And I want you to rest assured that we are the structure of our church is really a benefit to all children involved. And it goes above and beyond the average experience out there. And Jennifer gets into this in this interview. She's going to talk about four specific claims that you might hear a lot about. Let me go through them. The first one she's going to talk about is, is there more sexual abuse in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints than in other churches? The second claim she'll talk about, if the church really wanted to keep kids safe from abuse, they would require background checks. The third claim, the helpline is there to only keep the church out of legal trouble. The fourth claim, The church does not follow best practices to prevent and detect child abuse. Well, she's here to debunk those claims and set the record straight. Now, she also goes through that this is worth the interview alone, is going through seven specific things the church does to go above and beyond 
the standard best practices that you see most church or youth organizations do. So the church is doing so much and it is such a healthy structure and helps youth and children develop in a healthy manner because they are involved in the church. So you're going to benefit from this as a church leader, as a Latter-day Saint from listening to this. Uh, This was a video interview, which you can see on our YouTube channel if you want to get the full experience, but the audio should do just fine as well. And then she gave us the slides that she used during her presentation at the fair conference. And these are worth going through alone. She goes through each claim, shows the data, shows images, and uh, really guides you through in an informative way. So we'll put those things in the show notes along with her past Leading Saints interviews, but let's jump into it. Here's my interview with Jennifer Roach. All right, Jennifer Roach, welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Now you've been on, let's see, we did a couple years ago, we talked mm-hmm. about bishop interviews with youth, which yes. is everybody needs to listen to that, especially bishops and parents of youth. 2020, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then last year we talked when things hit the news about a sexual abuse case related to the church and you sort yes. of helped untangle that or help us understand that better. Yes. And then recently, this past year, you presented at the fair conference yes and uh, did a great job and i was sitting here listening thinking leaders need to hear this information Mm. so we're gonna get into it i mean because what i'm hearing is like when it comes to sexual abuse and you hear these different stories hit the news and i mean they're always tragic i mean there's victims involved Uh, awful 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 and so and then you know we learn about more more laws and things as far Mm -hmm. as like why wouldn't a bishop you know who receives this information why wouldn't he run to the phone why would he go to the legal line why would he you know just report to the the police and you know on social media there's this back and forth and they're fair questions yeah they're absolutely fair Mm -hmm. questions but sometimes it's oversimplified and Mm -hmm. at the end of the day nobody wants to put somebody at risk of sexual abuse right so where do we begin with i'd love to get into some of your the research you put together and i love how you i mean you sort of geek out on getting into the numbers and really understanding these things so that we can understand them, right? Yeah. You know, the framing of the question is really, really important because when you start from the place of what is the church doing wrong, you're going to come up with some different answers than if you say, what is the church doing? Mm -hmm. So like, how can we understand what this is and what this process is? So there's six areas that I presented on at the fair conference that I'd like to talk through here too. One of the big questions is, like, is there more sexual abuse in our church or, or isn't there? Yeah. Because that sometimes the media alludes to that, especially like in yes. the context of the Boy Scouts, right? That Absolutely. Obviously, they the Scouts have had issues with this topic. And mm-hmm. then since we were a big player in Scouts, it's sort of like, well, yeah. I wonder how big, you know, the church played in that. Yes. Our church. Yeah. So my research absolutely comes out of that to talk about rates of abuse. The next big question that comes up is why are we not requiring background checks for people? Mm-hmm. And that is one of those questions that is not as simple as it appears on Because it sounds value. simple, right? It sounds so yeah. simple. Because I, I think people have applied for a job before and they're like, yes. hey, this is something we do. Background check. Great. Yep. Why can't this huge church with funds do that? Right? Yeah. And we can talk through that and some of the problems that happen with background checks. Definitely want to talk about the helpline. Mm-hmm. Some of the issues that are there. Talk about what best practices for preventing and detecting abuse are. And then ask the question, like, do we follow those? This is what's known to work as best as it can. Do we follow those? And do you have anything else on top of those best practices that maybe other people aren't doing that explain some of what's happening in our context differently? And then just a little bit at the end on how to better detect abuse. Awesome. 
So where's a good jumping off point? With yeah, that? let's start actually with the Boy Scout data. So the Boy Scouts have kept really, really good records for the last 80 years. Like records of abuse happening? Of or? abuse happening. Okay. So for the last 80 years, they've kept files on their volunteers who have been suspected, accused, or convicted of abuse. So some of those files are available online. Their formal name is the Boy Scout Ineligible Volunteers Volunteer Files, but no one calls them that. <laughs> they call them the P Files because P stands for perversion. <laughs> and wow. that's that's just what they get called. There's a database of all these files. It's owned by the Los Angeles Times. If you Google P Files LA Times, you'll find it. You can search by location, you can search by date. Sometimes you can search by name. So th this is open to yep. open data for open, anybody looking. For anybody and, to and the does the law require the Boy Scouts to do it, or they've just made it available? Some of both. Okay, that's a longer, Whole not interesting story. Yeah, <laughs> the thing to point out here is the P files are different from the current cases that are being filed against the settlement claim. So they have a, a victims' compensation trust, and so people can file against that trust, receive money, do various amounts kind of depending upon what happened in their case. These are not those. So these are files that the Boy Scouts kept on abuse that they knew about. So obviously some abuse happens that they didn't know about. One of the questions that comes up here that I actually didn't talk about in my fair talk, I just didn't have time for it, is, is there something weird in our church that would make a child or a parent or a leader not report abuse that's different than maybe a boy from a Methodist family, hmm. right? Does the LDS boy and the and the Methodist boy, if they're both abused, is there a greater likelihood that the LDS family hides it and the Methodist family doesn't, mm -hmm. right? And, and what would be reasons for that? Like what? Protect the reputation of the church. Like maybe there's more, uh, you know, the authority. Like mm -hmm. I don't want to. My bishop says this isn't happening. I don't. I don't want to push back on my bishop. Type yeah, thing or something. It, and it is. It's a really fair question. It's yeah. a question that I've been asked several times since this presentation. I don't know how to back this up, but my intuitive sense from having spent almost five decades in the Protestant Church is it's exactly the same dynamic. The Methodist family wants to protect their church's reputation to the same degree that an LDS family would. Mm -hmm. Right. There's pressure on kids in other churches, families in other churches to not report. I don't see any reason to believe it's stronger in us than it is in somebody else. Okay. So we've got this collection of files called the P files. There's 5,300 of them or something like that. Some of them, well, let me back up. The really interesting thing about those files and why I got so excited when I understood what they were is almost all all of the Boy Scout troops are sponsored by churches. Hmm. There's about five, actually 3% that are not. They're sponsored by schools or like civic clubs, the Lions Club, like something like that. But most of them are chartered by churches. Okay. So just like us, because I grew up in the scouting world, yeah. but I only saw it from a Latter-day Saint perspective, but there may be a Methodist church Absolutely. who gets chartered, has their troop number and everybody who shows up on Sunday, they organize activities with those yes, boys. Yes, right? it works okay. exactly the same in other churches as it, as it worked in your experience. Okay. So interestingly enough, one of the most complete things in all these files go back 80 years, but every single one of them has this cover sheet that lists information about the abuser, 
and asks his religion. They're almost all male. There's a couple women in there. So people spell it out pretty plainly. I'm Catholic. I'm LDS. I'm, I'm whatever. Occasionally they don't. Hmm. So I went through the files, pulled out all the ones where they don't say, and you couldn't read through the file and determine it. So there's some where it just the religion just isn't listed, but you can read through the file and be like, this is clearly an LDS troop, right? Or this one's clearly a Catholic troop. Mm-hmm. So I pull out all the P files that you can't tell the religion. And I'm left with about 95% of the files where all of a sudden we have this giant database of abusers and we can tell where is the most abuse happening. Mm-hmm. The thing that makes it for me even more interesting was we know decade by decade how many Boy Scout troops there were that were affiliated with the LDS church. So depending upon the decade, it's anywhere from 20 to 35% of the troops were LDS. Hmm. I've been using the number 30% because it's a pretty good average that doesn't apply in every single decade. But we know 30% of the troops were LDS. That had abuse happen. That had abuse. Okay. No, 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 no. Sorry. Or, yeah. 30% of the total Boy Scout troops. Okay. Right? So 30% of them are chartered by our church. Okay, gotcha. The remaining ones are chartered by other churches. So the question becomes, is 30% of the abuse happening in those troops? Mm. The 30% number is also interesting because back in April, I think, maybe May, Boy Scouts exited from bankruptcy court with a plan basically to set up this settlement fund. Our church's contribution to that $2.4 billion is the total amount of the fund. I can't remember off the top of, head, top of my head what the number is, but it's 30% of the $2.4 billion, right? So 30% of the troops were LDS. 30% of this fund is coming, is our church's contribution to it. Did 30% of the abuse happen in LDS churches? So I call up a friend who's way better at statistics than I am. And said, like, look, this is my research question. Help me set this up. So he gave me a procedure and says, like, you follow this procedure. You will get a good, rigorous finding. So I went through files after files after files and just marked abuse happened. What's the person's religion? Mm -hmm. And I was honestly, I was expecting "Eh, maybe the abuse isn't 30 percent, but maybe it's like 20 percent. Like and I. You know, I'd be pretty pleased with that. It's 30% lower than you. Like, that would be okay. And I was shocked because the number that the the percentage of abuse, it's actually 5.16%. Yeah. Still a tragedy for that 5%. Absolutely awful. Not saying, yay, uh, like that pattern (laughs) ourselves on the back, but saying something's happening here that's driving that. Mm -hmm. Were you able to identify which, like, certain, certain churches that had the highest or we're at the top there? And is there anything to that? Yeah. So it gets tricky because in the Protestant world, so sometimes people just write for their religion, they just write Protestant. Oh yeah. That could mean all sorts of denominations, right? And sometimes they write Pastor John's church. Like, well, what in the the world is Pastor John's church, (laughs) right? And so the only way I could solidly group them was Catholic, Protestant, LDS, Jewish or none. There's almost no one who literally writes out none for religion. Some of them leave it blank. Okay. There's um, 1% of the abuse files are Jewish troops, but it's kind of a meaningless number because we don't know how many troops they contributed to the whole 
pool of troops, mm-hmm. right? Was 1% of the troops sponsored by Jewish churches? I don't know. And I don't know how to get that information, okay. although I tried. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that uh, uh, with this data, mm-hmm. out of all the troops in scouting, 30% mm-hmm. were Latter-day Saint troops. Mm-hmm. And then, but out of all the abuse happening, that was happening only in 5% yeah. of, of the abuse. So it's 75% less abuse than you would expect to see statistically. Mm-hmm. I don't mean like expect, like we expect to see abuse. Right. But, but if looking just, at the data. Yeah, yeah, just looking at the data, you would expect this number, you'd expect 30%. And it's 5%. So we're 75% encouraging. Under. Sure. It is encouraging. And the next, I mean, the logical question of it is like, why? What in the world is, is driving this number lower? The cynical answer is, well, our church has bullied them into not reporting or they were too afraid for the reputation of the church. But like I was talking about at the beginning, there's no reason to believe that's happening at a higher rate than it is in other churches. It's the same dynamic everywhere. Yeah. And it's almost on the flip side, like someone very pro-church would maybe say, well, you know, I don't think all that, all 5% of that was really abuse. Right. I mean, and that wouldn't be appropriate either. So right. we can't, we can't play that. Both yeah. Ways. yeah. They're, they're, they're awful cases. Yeah. I read all of them that I could read. Right. And it, and they're, and they're, they're bad. They're awful. Yeah. 5% is not great, but and here we are. Everybody involved there should be prosecuted yeah. and pay the consequences. Yeah. Those files go back 80 years. Oh, wow. So it's really fascinating because the means that abusers use haven't changed in 80 years. Yeah. It's, it's the same tricks they were pulling back then. So I mean, there's nothing new. Yeah. So I want to talk about some of the things in our church that make these rates possibly be lower. But before I do that, I really want to talk through background checks, because this will be part of that. So we were talking at the beginning, like, why in the world wouldn't we do background checks? And if you follow the news, less than a month ago, the saints in England had kind of lobbied the church there, like, hey, we need to have these universal background checks. And the reality is more and more states are going to require them. They're required in California right now. They're required in other places. Eventually, I think they'll be required by law everywhere. And it's a hoop that we will jump through. I mean, the realest reason why I want to go through this information is that's what's coming. And people need to understand what it means when we say, Brother Smith has a clean background check, because yeah. it does not mean what people think it means. So when you say universal, this is universal <laughs> background checks, like in England, for anybody working with youth. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the bishopric to the young men's advisor. Right? Yeah. And it that's a- Or the primary teachers. Yeah. In some places, like in California, that's a statewide law. It doesn't matter if you're running a knitting club, like the adults, every adult who could possibly be overseeing a child has to be background checked, no matter if it's a church or a school or a club or a swim team. Okay. Right? Yeah. yeah and with this, uh, when I hear, you know, uh, some saints are very encouraged in, mm-hmm. in the UK that yeah. we did it, you know, and they're sort of giving high fives, yeah. like we took this pivotal step and- I mean, at the end of the day, I want to look into anything that will mm-hmm. help minimize abuse happening in, yeah. in in our church. But I also, it's discouraging when you see that sort of the celebration, you think, did we really do something here? Like, how can we better understand this? So, because did we really take a step forward or was it maybe just a baby step? Right? Yeah, it's it's way more complicated. I wish it was the golden silver bullet that people think it is, but yeah. it, but it's not. Yeah. There's three issues in background checks. The first one is this issue of delayed disclosure. Most people who have experienced childhood or adolescent sexual abuse do not deliberately disclose under age 18. Most of the time when abuse is found out by them, they 
The kid kind of disclosed it accidentally, meaning they said something, an adult around them went, wait a minute, that's weird, and asked more questions and kind of gets it out of the kid. It's super rare for a a seven-year-old to just like march up to you and I need to tell you what so-and-so did. Like kids just don't work that way. So most disclosure in childhood is accidental, but most people don't disclose in childhood. Even fewer people disclose in their 20s. Like almost no one discloses for the first time in their 20s. They just don't. Mm. It's something like 8% of abuse victims disclose in their 20s. About 12% disclose in their 30s or 40s. The the largest age group for when people first disclose that this ever happened to them is, is in their 50s. Wow. Between age 50 and 70, almost 40% of the disclosures that are ever going to happen, happen then. So let me ask you about that. Like, I can kind of understand maybe why an adolescent is just like, you know, I mm-hmm. I don't know how to talk about these things. Yeah. I'm embarrassed. You yeah. know, and, and the abuser often makes them feel like it's part of your part of the problem. Mm-hmm. It's your fault. So, yeah. you know, I don't want this getting out. Maybe in their 20s, maybe they're just not quite mature yet or think, I'm good. I can handle it. I'm moving on with my yeah, life. moving on. Yep. I'm not looking to take down that pastor down the street or yeah. the bishop or whatever. Any idea of like why that's the case? Ah, I mean, it's a really, really good question. I think they're in their 20s and 30s. They're working on other life tasks. Mm-hmm. They're going to school. They're starting their career. They're getting married. They're raising kids and trying a lot of them so hard to put energy into that and just leave the past in the past. But you can see as you age up, more and more people disclose. And it's like this little burr under their saddle that they hope will go away and just doesn't go away. Yeah. So by the time somebody's over 50, they feel kind of safe enough and established enough and okay enough that they say something for the first time. Yeah. And I imagine that trauma has maybe, maybe I mean, they're wrestling with clinical depression now, yeah. or they can't even manage themselves as a mother or a father. And so mm-hmm. they go to a counselor, that counselor helps them yeah. do that. And then they have to face these demons. Yeah. So here's the problem with that. Okay. Up until recently, very recently, every state had a statute of limitations. There's about 14 states right now who have either eliminated it or significantly elongated it. However, some states have a two-year after you turn 18 statute. And what that Mm -hmm. means is you don't report this as a crime to the police within the statute of limitations you can never file charges, criminal charges against that person. Which means it will never go on their record for a background check. Yes. So the vast- Let alone it's too, I mean, it's so late now. I mean, how many additional victims, right? Right. The vast majority of abusers have nothing that will ever show up on their background check because nothing's ever been reported to the police. Right. Of the ones who get reported to the police, about 1% of them end up- all the way through the process and in jail. So of mm. all the abusers out there, this tiny little fraction would come up positive on a background check because they've actually done something. Now, the question here becomes, well, wouldn't we want to catch that 1%? There are some people who are bold enough, they've gone to jail before and they're like, I'm going to try it again. And yes, absolutely, we want to be able to catch those people, but it comes with some dangers. And we're also talking, you're talking about this in the context of background checks. Like mm-hmm. even if the statute of limitations run out, of course, that individual should still come forward and mm-hmm. share that information. But we're just talking about even if they do, it will not land on a background yeah, check. Yeah. So, you know, 
I actually I did a little informal survey with people and asked, what do you think is being checked on a background check? Like, what is a background check? Mm-hmm. And people gave me answers that I knew to be completely ridiculous, but they actually legitimately thought it was true. Lots of answers like, I bet they're calling up like my past employers and they're they're talking to people and they're checking my references. They're checking with CPS to see if any complaints have ever been made against me. They're looking at my education history, neighbors. They're like, whatever people think is happening in a background check is not what is happening in a background check. Because yeah, it feels very comprehensive. Like when someone says, oh, let's do background checks and everybody working with youth. And it's like, we're going to investigate everybody. And so yeah. we'll have just a, I mean, it'll be so thorough mm-hmm. that nobody will get through the system. But it's just, that's not what a background check is. Yeah. Someone told me, it says, oh, I think what they do is they go, they look at all your social media. They see what you, comments you've made on social media and like mm-hmm. find out like, are you in any groups that are sketchy? Like no, internet history, like nothing yeah. like that is happening. Right, right. There's a few different levels of background checks that churches generally use. There's companies that like provide these, some denominations have it, they do it in-house. The very, very strictest version of a background check used by any church in the United States that I could find, here is what it contains. They verify that the person has given their correct name, date of birth, social security number, and address. So they are who they say they are. They check the terrorist watch list. So you know they're not a terrorist. They know they can't fly anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) They're checking to see if you've been convicted of a crime in the last seven years. Not accused, Mm -hmm. not suspected, but convicted. And... You know, from the delayed disclosure conversation, almost no one, almost, it's a crime people almost always get away with. Yeah. Right? So almost no one is convicted, especially in the last seven years, such a short window. And they check that the person is not on the publicly available sex offender website. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like that's, like if we want to know, if someone's been, and correct me if I'm wrong, but someone's like been convicted, that's mm-hmm. when they land on that list. That's when they land on that. Yeah. And anybody, like when I move into a neighborhood, I can check that list for with my neighbors. Absolutely right? you can. And it requires no background check. Right? Yeah. It's a yeah. it's free to do. All of the states have their own version of it. You can check your state, you can check other state, you can check any address in America. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, you know, speaking in a church context, I remember as a bishop, I didn't necessarily need to go to that registry. I mean, maybe it's good practice. Mm-hmm. It takes a few minutes, yeah. but if there is, even if there's not a conviction, but even like a spiritual process that's mm-hmm. taken place of an abuser, like there's going to be an annotation on that record that's going to flag that. Yes, right? which mm-hmm. is, we'll get to that. One of the things that happens differently in our church in terms yeah, yeah. of how are you alerting leader? How can a mm-hmm. leader know that this person is safe? So background checks don't really actually check all that much. The question of, well, shouldn't we still try? Yeah, because it comes back to what just even if it saves one yes. victim, Jennifer, like just mm-hmm. one, right? And that's yeah, like I'm very empathetic. Like, okay, well, let's jump through as many hoops to save that one person. Absolutely. I am incredibly empathetic with that. And I ultimately, this is where we're going. And ultimately, this is what, what it's going to be. Here's the danger. When the church says, we have called Brother Jones to teach in the primary and he has a clear background check. What people hear is he's safe. They've done this thorough, thorough, thorough check and, and there's nothing. This guy is squeaky, squeaky clean. But it doesn't mean that. 
It means he's not on the terrorist watch list. He hasn't committed a crime in the last seven years, and he's not on the sex offender website. That's all clean background check means. Almost no one has a conviction. So we've just told a whole bunch of people, brother so-and-so is safe. You can trust your children to him. And let our guard down, right? Yes. Down. And parents don't mean to. Right. But they're busy and life is complicated. And, and that's what human beings do is we just want to simplify. Members in our church put a lot of authority, put a lot of belief in what our leaders say. So if your bishop stands up and says, this brother, his background is clean, people think that means something it doesn't mean. Mm-hmm. And that worries me. I wish we were using different kind of language around background checks instead of saying things like, he has a clean background check, to say there are no convictions found on his record. Yeah is a much more more He's honest thing to say. not on the sex say. offender list. Yes, right? correct. Mm-hmm. And people don't like that because they want to feel safe. They want to feel like we can tell who is and who isn't an abuser. And the reality is you can't. Yeah. And I, parents literally actually need to keep their guard up. Yeah. So in this effort of trying to you know do this just for that one person, mm-hmm. that one potential victim, we can sometimes open it up to well, we're good. We'll let our guard down. And now there's three additional victims, you know, because we weren't watching it close enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. Yay. Background checks in England. Good for them. And oh, please be careful because it don't mean what you think. Yeah. Let's pretend like you didn't, you're not doing background checks. Yeah. Business as usual, right? Yeah. Youth and protection program, know the Mm -hmm. rules, do those things, right? Yeah. I actually got an email a week ago from the leadership in my stake who said, we want every adult in our stake, whether you have a youth calling or not, every single adult needs to do Love the it. youth and child protection. I thought, that's wonderful. Yeah. It doesn't take that long. It doesn't take that long. <laughs> and you get all the information real fast. Anyway, yeah. so that's kind of the bit on on background checks. I, I will say this, you know, the, the AP case from a year ago, it's this family in Bisbee, Arizona. They were members of the church, the kids and the mom went all the time. The dad didn't really go all that much. He horrifically abuses the children. Absolutely. It's the worst abuse case I've ever heard of. That guy worked for Border Patrol. Mm. So he had to pass a, a federal level background check every single year. A federal background check is much closer to what people think of when they think of a background check it's not exactly maybe like they're not they're probably not checking your internet history but this guy passed that level of background check every single year mm. and he's the worst abuser i have ever heard of he would have passed a check up until the day he hung himself in jail there's nothing on his there, he was not convicted mm. there's nothing on his record despite the fact that he literally made pornography of his own children and put it online wow and that dude passes a background check yeah. So he did not have a primary calling, but if he had, and they said, you know, gosh, brother Adams, he's got a clean background check. You guys can trust him. That's a problem. Yeah. Really they're, helpful. Yeah. They're not, they're not what people think they are. Any questions on that? I think we covered it. Okay. I mean, it's just, uh, again, just, you know, it goes back to, you know, staying in line with the direction we've given through the youth protection program mm-hmm. and. And make sure we're doing our best to follow yeah. those rules. And again, even that's not like now we're all, you know, mm. we're all buckled down and good to go. Yeah. Uh, Parents helpful. still have the responsibility of their children to keep their children safe and keep their guard up. The biggest issue in that is sometimes parents are the ones doing the abuse, right? right? It's this is a problem you can't ever 100% completely solve with any one measure. Yeah. So let's talk about the helpline a little bit. 
Helpline got a lot of criticism when the story about that Bisbee case came out. You can go online and read all kinds of things that say, oh, they're just there to hide abuse. They are there to get the church out of legal trouble. They are there to make the church look good at the expense of children who are being abused. The popular story right now, as told by the AP and other places, is that in that Arizona case, the first there's two bishops involved. The first bishop learned about the abuse, called the helpline. The helpline told him, you have to hide this. You can't say anything. Abuse continues. The next bishop comes in. First bishop passes on the information. Second bishop calls the helpline. And they reiterate, we don't care that these kids are being abused. You can't say anything. Like this is the claim, right? This is, is the claim. This, yeah, is what, yeah. this is what this the, is, the AP okay. says. This is what's been repeated okay. over and over and over again. Okay. However, that claim does not hold up. They wrote that story a year ago, a little more than a year ago. That is what they were accusing. However, as things have played out in the court process, it is very clear in the court documents that that is not what happened. Both bishops have sworn declarations in front of the court saying, I found out about that abuse the exact same way everybody else did in the newspaper. The first bishop knew of a one-time event that had happened in the past and that structural changes had been made in the family so that dad was never home with the kids. Now, it's really easy for people to fill in what was that one-time incident? If he knew of one time of abuse, shouldn't he have gone and told? Here's the problem. You don't know what that one-time event was. I don't know what that one-time event was. Those two bishops have never said, and that is their pastoral duty, to withhold that information in confidence. Presumably, and maybe the attorneys know that information is not available publicly. So they never claim that they didn't tell anybody because they're a pastor. Right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So whatever it is, the father and the family confesses. First bishop brings the wife in and says, you know, please tell me again with her here so I know like, like what's actually going on, making sure she knew. The father does that. They explain the structural changes in their family that aren't going to allow it to happen anymore. But we don't know what that piece of abuse was. Was it actual full sexual abuse? Was it weird leering at his daughter? Anything in between? We don't know. Mm -hmm. And no one knows. Mm -hmm. So people have filled in that ambiguous detail with their own imagination of what they think the bishop knew. But you don't know. Okay. All right. So I just, just say that. The reason why I bring that up is the accusation is bishops called the helpline, helpline told them, oh, no, the reputation of our church is much more important than the safety of these kids. You can't do anything. That, as proven in court, is not the case. So the question of, like, why do we need a helpline? Like, what is so hard about you learn about abuse, pick up the phone, call Child Protective Services? Like, that's a fair question. Why is this so, such a complicated thing that we need a helpline? This is kind of my favorite example to talk through. If you imagine you are a bishop in the state of Utah, and in the course of your regular bishop duties, you hear about two situations. One is two 13-year-old kids in your ward have engaged with each other in sexual touching. The second one is a 16-year-old in your ward is having a full sexual relationship with a 22-year-old. Which one of those is illegal? I would assume the second one is illegal. Right? 
the first one is like, you know, youth stupidity. Oh, kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stop doing that. That's not chastity. Yeah. So it gets complicated. The age of consent in Utah is 18, except for there's also a provision that says 16 and 17-year-olds may legally have a sexual relationship with an adult up to seven years older than them. Mm. Sometimes they call it a Romeo and Juliet law, mm. right? And it's trying to protect the like 16-year-old in a relationship with an 18-year-old. So they give them a pretty good window. As it turns out, a 16-year-old and a 22-year-old may have a sexual relationship. That's not illegal and that's not abuse as long as both of them are consenting to that. Mm. Wow. And I would have never known. Yeah, you know, I've been a bishop, you know, for five years, and I never knew this. This you know? is current today Utah law. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and as it turns out, there's a statute in Utah law. I can cite it for you that says two 13 year olds engaging in sexual touching is a crime. Wow. No one may engage in sexual touching with a 13 year old, even if that other person is another 13 year old. They and both, both have, consensual, right? Even if it's consensual, right? right? They have both committed. A crime. Now, if you are a bishop, chances are you don't know that off the top of your head. Yeah. I'm a mandated reporter. I would not have picked up that detail off the top of my head, right? Mm -hmm. So the questions of like, is this abuse? If I don't report this, am I harboring a, a sexual predator in the form of these two 13-year-olds? You can now see why we need a helpline. Yeah. And that's one state, right? And the laws are slightly different. In every single state, not to mention around the world. Yeah. Right. So I don't think most bishops are going to ever have the thought of, oh, I learned about these two 13 year olds. I better call the helpline. But if they did, they would get the correct information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what <laughs> I'm curious to know what they, they would say, like, what do you do with two 13 year olds that are doing that? I don't know. Maybe call the helpline. I don't know. So in Utah, it's a misdemeanor, but don't let that fool you. It, there's some DUIs in Utah that are misdemeanors. Uh -huh. So what happens to those kids? What's the point? Do they go to juvenile hall? For, <laughs> I literally have no idea, but that's the law that's on today's books. It's not yeah. like that's an old law from the 60s. Interesting. Um, Interesting. One thing I want to go back, you know, yeah. the reputation mm -hmm. argument. That's one thing that confused me with the Arizona case because this individual, <laughs> it wasn't like he was the bishop. Like no. he was barely active. And so obviously throughout this the church's reputation is taking more of a hit now Yes, rather than if we did let it get out. Like, I mean, that person and his reputation meant nothing to the church Literally on paper. nothing. Yeah. yeah. The guy attends a few times a year. If primary is singing in sacrament meeting, he's going to go see his kids, right? And maybe he's there on Christmas and Easter. And that's the extent of, of that man's participation. He had the ironic priesthood and that's it. Had never been endowed, didn't go on a mission. Like none of the normal things that you would think of of as a leader in our church. Mm -hmm. He's a barely a nominal member. And what interest would the church have of we need to protect that guy? Like it's nonsensical. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see how there may be, I think you've experienced this in other denominations where, yeah, they want to sort of protect the the pastor because if we lose him or I, I don't yeah. know, there's more at stake. Maybe. So that is, a, I mean, it's an interesting point when you talk about Abuse in a church context, most of the time you're talking about the official clergy of that church mm -hmm. or volunteers of that church. However, our church is structured really differently. Mm -hmm. Everybody's a volunteer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if we wanted to say the abuse of every, every abuser in the Southern Baptists, 
like their numbers all of a sudden skyrocket because random dude who attends three times a year is now included in those numbers. Yeah. Whereas our numbers are including like, oh, he's ordained to the priesthood. So that sound like in this AP article, you see that he's he makes the error of assuming ordained to the ironic priesthood means that this man is clergy mm-hmm. and it doesn't. Oh, yeah. It's much different. I mean, everybody's ordained. I mean, generally speaking, yeah. if you're active. and The apples to apples comparison there probably would be something like bishops and above. Yeah. And I'm not saying bishops have never committed abuse. They have. I'm not saying people above bishops have never committed abuse. They have. But that's a real different number than the number of the entire aggregate of every adult in the church. Yeah. Right? I wonder if do people maybe default to this reputation argument because, I mean, because we, you know, with the Catholic Church's issues, mm-hmm. that was more at stake, right? It was so. Would you would you say that's the case? Or? Yeah, the Catholic issue is. I mean, there's two things that are driving that. One is the reputation issue. Because these were priests, yeah, that were like leading. They're churches. priests who have trained for this. This is their full time career. It, this isn't brother so and so who got called for two years to lead Boy Scouts, right? Yeah. And so, not only is it one, but it's a group. And yeah. how do we do this? Let's move them around. Or, you so know, that. The, the moving around bit, what happens there is over the decades, the possible pool of priests shrinks. Mm-hmm. I mean, the possible pool of priests today is tiny. Many Catholic congregations in the United States have bishops from South America that they have brought here to be priests because there's not enough priests to go around, right? Mm-hmm. So the the pool naturally shrunk. And as it was shrinking, there's pressure on the Catholic Church towards, we got to supply a place in Chicago with a priest. We're out of priests. Mm-hmm. Well, we're just going to move this guy up from Florida and give him a fresh start. Say, hey, buddy, you yeah. know, just don't touch the kids up there. Well, of course he does. Yeah. And this is, you're, you'll talk about this later, but this is, I mean, at the end of the day, we're like, we, we can get rid of that bishop. We're getting a new one in yes. three years anyways, you know, like yes. th- th- there's a, a strength in that tradition. Yeah. And the church is never going to move your local wards bishop across the country to yeah, be a to, bishop yeah. in another state, right? right? So yeah. the claim that the church only has the helpline to get them out of legal trouble, the other part of that answer is that's actually true. The church does use the helpline to get out of legal trouble, but what's the best way to stay out of legal trouble? Follow the law. Right, yeah. That's what the helpline is there for. I I drove here today. I tried to do the speed limit. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And you got here on time. I got here on time. You would have been late if you didn't. Yeah. And if I didn't want a ticket, I should obey the law. And that's what the helpline is doing. Yeah. Another thing in relation to the helpline that sort of... I am curious your response. People say, okay, the bishops get a helpline. Why isn't there a helpline for everybody else? Yeah. How would you respond? Yeah. There is a helpline for everybody else. That helpline is called make an appointment with your bishop and he can set you up with a therapist, right? You Mm -hmm. want the church to be involved and people also can call a therapist on their own, right? They're having trouble finding someone or having trouble navigating that, having trouble paying for that. Mm -hmm. The church has provided local leaders that you can actually sit down and talk to. Yeah, or I'd say that there is a helpline for that. It's called the police. If there's like a dramatic, like Abs- if we're talking like, about crimes, call have the happened, authorities. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Call Child Protective Services in your state one eight six six and harm. That's the national number for mm-hmm. CPS. 
So yeah, if there's like an abuse, like a youth leader, for instance, mm-hmm. or even the bishop, and you know, abuse is happening mm-hmm. there, call the police. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> want like the relief society president calling a general helpline from the church. Yeah, they should call the police. But in the and some people say, well, yeah, exactly, Kurt. That's what the bishop should do. Mm-hmm. But in reality, the the bishop is a represent an official representative yes. of the church, and so there's restrictions that we'll probably get into that you've talked about yeah, before. The, that they can't just do that. The, and the helpline is there to help them fulfill their legal responsibilities as well as help them get help to the victim, mm-hmm. right? And if someone is a victim of abuse, like outside of the church setting, go to your bishop. He can help you out, right? Mm-hmm. That's what he's there for. Yeah. Anything else with the helpline? No, I think I think we're good on that. I want to talk through best practices and does our church follow them? Because this is like a word that gets thrown around a lot and like, oh, we don't even follow minimum standards. And the too long didn't read is that is not true, right? So the standard best practices as agreed upon by almost every organization that is trying to protect children, this is what they are. Are you screening volunteers? Are you training them? Is abuse promptly reported? Are there at least two adults around every time children or youth are around? Are parents informed of private conversations and given the chance to join when possible? Adults don't transport children alone. Communication should include at least two adults, like electronic communications, windows and classroom doors, and parents are responsible to take their young children to the bathroom if their children need bathroom help, right? I don't know how in-depth you want to go on this, but every single one of those is either in our handbook or is in the youth and child protection training. We practice all of these. Do you even, want to drill down into no, any no, of I them? Think, I think anybody who's familiar with the youth protection mm-hmm. program will see that. But some may see, wait, windows, like what about the bishop's office? And we've talked on this a little mm-hmm. bit in other interviews, but what about that? Because the bishop calling is, is sort of unique. He has yeah. regular interviews and things. Anything you'd add yeah. there in that context? So the alternative to, like there must be a window in the office that maybe it's an even better thing is that youth can invite their parents in. That youth can invite their young woman's leader in. They mm-hmm. can invite a friend in. That's in the handbook. That kid doesn't mm-hmm. have to be sitting in there alone if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. So no, there's probably not a window in the bishop's office. And there's a built-in protection for that that might even be a better protection than a window. Yeah. The idea of parents should be informed of the private conversations that are going to happen. How it usually goes down in other churches, in my experience, is if we're talking about teenagers, There's lots of conversation between teenagers and their youth group leaders on issues surrounding chastity. Of course there is. This is an issue all teenagers deal with. However, Mm -hmm. the difference is those aren't regularly scheduled conversations that the parents know are coming. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when those conversations happen, most of the time the parents are not informed that they ever happened at all. So you have Joe, the youth pastor, who's maybe a 24-year-old kid talking with this 15-year-old about sexual issues and mom and dad don't know a thing about it. So this may have, like in an a LDS context, this may be like at the youth activity, they're playing dodgeball, but the priest corner advisor is having a conversation in the corner with somebody. Mm-hmm. And if he's a predator, mm-hmm. he sort of begins to take in a sexual nature. Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In and, a, and nobody would know that that, because that wasn't an official right? meeting. Whereas the meetings with the bishop... Every parent in the church knows their youth is going to have bishop interviews and they know exactly what that bishop is going to ask them. They definitely should know. They should know. (laughs) And parents have been advised, like, please make sure your child understands what chastity is so that when the bishop says to him, are you obeying the law of chastity? That kid doesn't have to go, what's that? (laughs) And then the bishop has an awkward conversation of, 
go talk to your dad. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I've sort of learned and picked up from you and others of like, if I was to be a bishop again, I'd sort of be done with the like, I'm not going to give you the breakdown of chastity. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to ask you the question, but if you have further questions, hey, go talk. That would go be good. Your or I'll reach out to the parents like, hey, listen, I was meeting with, with Jimmy and he had, he really, it was obvious he... You know, I even I'm a deacon score advisor, mm -hmm. and I uh, we touched on the story of uh, Jesus and the adulterous woman. Yeah, and I had a deacon raise his hand and says, "What's adultery?" I'm like, uh, "All right, oh, all right, you here go, go. talk to your parents, and uh, we're going to move on here." <laughs> yeah. You know? So yeah, just sort of defaulting the because in the past I feel like the bishops have felt more of a weight of like I'm the guy that does the law of chastity lesson. Yes, right? and rally, that's not what it is. You, you ask the question. Yeah. yeah, and I mean I haven't been in this church very long, but it seems like there is a greater influence or expectation today of the bishop asks the questions on the list and doesn't get off into the weeds mm -hmm. in his own questions that could go bad. Yeah, yeah especially and, temple recommend questions. It's very yes. clear on that. Yeah, these um, are the questions. Yeah. And one other thing I, you know, I would do differently now that since there's been more of an emphasis on this of just making more people aware of like, you know, you can bring somebody when you, you want to yeah. meet anybody you want to bring or... Do you want your youth leader there with that help or, you know, just like adding that sort of as a passing question, just so yes. they're, they don't feel like, no, I can't bring, no, this is a between me and the bishop and this is where mm -hmm. I confess or this, you know, we can't have anybody else in there yeah. when in reality, no, would you like to, you know, and just Absolutely. give that option over yeah. and over. Yeah. No, I yeah. love that. I do want to talk a little bit about what is our church doing above and beyond those kind of gold standard things in child protection? Because by this point, everybody's doing those. You'd be hard-pressed to find a church that isn't saying, hey, adults shouldn't transport children alone in their car if they're not related to them, mm -hmm. right? It, everybody's doing those. So if we go back to the Boy Scout number, the 5.16%, what's making our number better if it's not, oh, the church hides abuse better? Like, like what, what is it? So I have theories. <laughs> no, these are really insightful because this is, I can't. I'm a fish who doesn't know I'm swimming in water. Right, exactly. You know? And so having this perspective is really helpful. I went into the water and went, holy cow, this is so different, right? <laughs> so the first one, and I think I've talked about this on your show before, is the calling system. Mm -hmm. In a non-LDS church, if you want to volunteer with the third graders and you are on your first Sunday in that church, you could volunteer to do that. You might have to jump through a process, an application, a background check, some training, they might say, we only take volunteers who've been here six months, but six months is about the longest any place is going to push it. Because mm. so, they need help. Because <laughs> they gotta need be with the help, the, right? The yeah. And so you could walk in a in the front door of a church on day one and six months later be given charge of children. Whereas in our church, and I know this is not a perfect system, but in theory, have to be wait, you have to wait to be called. And maybe you get a child calling and maybe you don't. Now, I know. That there are people who can go to their bishop and say, Bishop, I really want to work with the deacons and be given a deacon calling. That happens. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that the calling system itself isn't protective. And I'm not here to tell bishops what to do. But in my opinion, follow the standard protocol of the calling system and kids in your ward will be safer. Yeah. And I don't remember the exact wording of it in the, in the handbook, but I know during my time, like there were certain things that would strongly encourage you to call the former bishop. And that's mm -hmm. the beauty, of, which you'll get to, is about this geographic, and, mm -hmm. you know, you're in this ward. I know where you came from. Yes. I can call that previous bishop. Or, and many times, just a quick email, like, hey, yeah. Brother Jones is in the ward. 
looking to put them in a certain calling, anything mm-hmm. I should be aware of. Yeah. And a lot easy. of times it was like, nope. And and other faith traditions wouldn't have that, right? Not at all. Not even remotely. Next one. This is so funny to me because most people would never ever recognize this as a child protection device, but it is. And it's that we require people to be sustained. The law of common consent, right? Yes. So here's how it happens in other places. A church could be 800 people and -and so-and-so volunteers to be with the children. They go through whatever hoops they have to go through, and they are now in charge of the third graders. And no one else in the church really knows. If you're a parent of a third grader, you might know. However, Sitting on the other side of the congregation is someone who has a piece of information about you. And they know some sketchy things that you have done and that you should not be trusted with children. In our church, there is no one who's working in primary that the entire congregation doesn't know exactly who is in those callings because it's announced and sustained on Sundays. So the person sitting on the other side of the building who says, oh boy, I know some things. I get it. They might not feel comfortable dissenting in the middle of sacrament meeting, but they absolutely could easily go to the bishop and be like, hey, heads up. That just doesn't happen other places. Callings are, they don't have callings, they have volunteerings. Mm -hmm. They're not public. And so you don't know who's necessarily doing what. And the fact that we are sustaining people as we are, it's a protection. And it goes hand in hand with the next one, which I've been calling existing associations. And this one works better in a place like here in Utah, but it it can work other places as well. And the idea here is in other churches, you can go to any church you want. You can drive two hours away to go to church if you want to. Maybe someone drives two hours away because it's a great church and they really, really want to attend it. But maybe someone drives two hours away because they have a reputation in their own town or in their own church of being sketchy with kids and they can get a fresh start two hours away at least in a place, Idaho, Utah, Arizona, California to some degree, Oregon to some degree, your stakes are smaller, right? Mm -hmm. My stake is like four blocks. Uh (laughs) It would be really, really hard to have a bad reputation for sketchy stuff you do with kids and not have other people around you know, because the expectation is that you're going to church with your neighbors. Yeah. If your neighbors know something about you, they have an opportunity to say it. In other churches, if a, if a predator goes and signs up for First Street Church and wants to volunteer and somebody's on to them and suspicious of them, they just leave and they just pick up at another church and they get a brand new fresh start where now they know what mistake not to make. And now they know how to better hide and not be detected. Yeah, And that just goes on and on and on and on. And you can't do that as easily here. It ties into the third one, which is you and I have talked about the member number system. Yeah. And I'll just add to that. Yeah. Like, I even think like even in Omaha, Nebraska mm-hmm. or wherever, it's like maybe there's a potential predator who's like, okay, this ward, there's not a lot of opportunity here. Or, or mm-hmm. I'm just going to go check out some other wards. You can't just show up in another ward and be like, how come you live here Yep. when you should be going to this ward? There's going to be a phone call, most likely. Yes. Right. We hope anyways. Yeah. Like, what's going on here and why do you need to come to this ward? What is it? What's wrong with that ward? And, yep. you know, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. So. I mean, a lot of this, what it comes down to is when people follow the procedures that we have, things go better for kids. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's a pain to make a phone call or send an email. But you want child protection that gets you a number like 5.16%. These are the things that get you there. Yeah. So being able to make an annotation on the member number system, 
the benefit here is a bishop doesn't have to wait until there's a conviction on someone's record to have this show up. They could write whatever it is they're going to write. Whereas with a background check, you're checking convictions. How many sexual abusers get convicted? Almost none. Right. And so when a bishop can write like, hey, this incident happened, maybe don't give them a youth calling. That's a different level of accountability than they have to go all the way through and get convicted and be on the sex offender website. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is another thing like I don't I just took it for granted that doesn't every church do this? Like So they don't. Here's a fascinating story about 10 years ago. So the Southern Baptists have had all kinds of problems with abuse and they're set up differently than we are. And some of their setup has caused that abuse to flourish. And so a group of advocates went to them and said, hey, you guys got about 14 million members. It really wouldn't actually be that hard for you to create a member number system. Everybody gets a number and you kind of track people as they move from all of these different churches. Their churches are not set up geographically. So people can go anywhere, making a number system even more valuable. And at first they said, yeah, yeah, that's actually a great idea. That actually would protect kids. Let's do that. And then they came back and said, no, 14 million members is too many to track. We're not going to do that. But what they did <laughs> was they secretly decided to track abusers anyway. Hmm. And they kept a secret list. <laughs> that never ends well, it seems like. No. I've seen the movies. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They keep a secret list at their headquarters of hey, here's the guys we know who have a history of abusing kids. We know what churches they did it in. We know what churches they're currently working in, but we're not going to tell anybody. So what's the logic of keeping a secret? They didn't want to go against their own value of forgiveness on these people. These are mm. people who supposedly should be given another chance, mm. which it's hysterical to me that we make that case with children like, oh, this guy messed up, but he's repented. We should forgive him. You would never in a million years make that choice with money. If someone is in charge of the accounting at their company and they embezzle a million dollars, no one is ever going to give them a job where they're in charge of the money ever, ever again in their entire life. They are disqualified from that and a foolish person might entertain it, but it isn't going to go anywhere. And yet churches do it with kids. Yeah. Oh, he's repented. He's fine. Jesus forgives. Well, Jesus does forgive, but that doesn't mean you get a youth calling. Yeah. Your calling is now word historian, like whatever. So the Southern Baptist list, it actually came out about a year and a half ago. They got pressured into making it public. I was, of course, interested when it came out. Two of the men on that list are at the were at the church where I grew up. Wow. And- they entirely and kept it on keeping that information secret. Never warned. One of those men still currently works in a church. and The other one has tried to get rehired at churches. Their denomination wanted to keep that secret from local leaders. Whereas with the member number system, whoever your bishop or your branch president, like any of your leaders can see that. So I know most people don't look at their member number and go, oh, we're protecting kids with this, yeah. but we are. Yeah. And I'll add to that, not only the member number, but the annotation yeah. system that allows us to attach an annotation yes. to a number and say, hey, if this guy just moved to your ward, why don't you call the church office building? And we'll tell you yes. a little bit more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another protection that we don't necessarily see is, and this applies mostly to teenage girls, more abuse happens of teenage girls than of teenage boys, although teenage boys certainly get abused. Both groups are more abused by men. 
So this isn't a protection necessarily for teenage boys. However, girls in our churches are given specifically called and sustained women leaders that are over them. It's not to say they're never taught in Sunday school by a male leader or that they're they're not interacting with male leaders at all. They are, but they have women who have been called as part of their spiritual care. It doesn't happen a lot like that in other churches. Yeah. There might be some some women volunteers, but they're not given the same kind of recognition of their leadership being responsible for these young people. Mm -hmm. And girls in our church have that. Hmm. And it's an extraordinarily good feature for our teenage girls. It doesn't solve the problem for boys. Because um, the majority of abusers are men. Are right? men, mm -hmm. right? And so some men abuse girls and some men abuse boys. The examples that just popped into people's mind of, I, I heard of a teacher who was abusive. Yes, those happen. Mm -hmm. But generally, those are on the news as much and they stick in your mind because they're the rare exception, not because there's just as many women as there are men. Yeah. It, it's just... It, that's yeah. nothing against men. It's that's just, just what, is sad. what it is. That's what the data yeah. is, regardless of what it means. So having yeah. having women leaders for our young women is a really good thing. My next one is, in our church, if you are abusing kids, we will kick you out. Yeah. And in other churches, that does not happen. Yeah. And it's almost like it's a closed, open and shut case. Like it's- Yeah. <laughs> this is what happened. Sorry, man. You're out. I- Listen, if people have listened to me on your show before or, yeah. or have heard probably anything from me, like my experience was being sexually abused by one of the pastors at my church. That pastor still works at a church. It just baffles they, my mind. They know absolutely everything that has happened. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. And in our church, no, it's not perfect. And yes, there are people who have, for whatever reason, procedure has not been followed and they fall through the cracks, but you will get kicked out. If you get kicked out for abusing children, it requires first presidency approval to get back in. In other churches, it requires you to say, I've repented and Jesus forgave me. Mm -hmm. So, And there's no like uh, formal like rebaptism like we have. Oh, or, no. Or <laughs> nothing you know, like that. Reinstatement because another council is called, right? When yes. somebody's being reamended. Re um, so, yeah. Yeah. No, they, they don't do anything like that. And I'm just thinking of obviously people can repent and re yeah. turn back. But again, the annotation. Yeah. System. And I think of a scenario I heard of in a place I won't mention, but uh, there was a state presidency that tried to put somebody on the high council or call him as a, as a elder scorn president who had, it was a, a, a former predator or is mm -hmm. a predator. I don't know. Yeah. From, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, people picked up on it and it, it became mm -hmm. an issue in the community. And that was sort of that structure came alive thanks yeah. to that. Right? Yeah. When the policies that we have are followed, and I'm not a super big, like, we must follow the rules kind of person, but when you make exceptions, you do open yourself up to the exception that you're making might be causing a kid to get into trouble here. Mm -hmm. Like, if people would follow the procedures that we have, kids are better off. Yeah. The last one that I want to talk about really briefly is the helpline actually is a protection for kids. So not talking about the legal side of it, a bishop fulfilling his legal responsibilities, but he also can call the helpline and get connected to someone who can say, here are ways in which you can help this person. My bishop is an auto mechanic. He's brilliant. He can fix anything with a motor. <laughs> However, <laughs> he probably did not have an intuitive understanding on day one of being bishop. Here's what an abuse victim needs. Right. Right. So he 
wonderfully, I think, has this line that he can call and they'll connect him with somebody, with one of the LDS counselors who says, get them connected to therapy, get get them this, get them this, get them this. And now all of a sudden the bishop has a game plan of how to help and support yeah. a victim. And especially in those cases, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there are still some laws and whatnot where a bishop may call the legal line and mm-hmm. say, can I report this? Yeah. And they say, no, you can't. Here's why. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, what can I do? Yeah. Should I go camp out in front of their house and really put the pressure on? I mean, what yeah. what do you want me to do? Because and the fact that you know, I was a 28 year old punk kid oh. in my <laughs> in my experience as a bishop, and so that legal line came in. I'm like, oh, okay, I can do that. Just yeah. tell me what to do. I'll go do it. Where you don't want to leave that up to me of being like, well, maybe if they come in three more times, then yeah. I'll you know you don't want that on my yeah. And that's what happened. Shoulders. That's what happened in the Bisbee case is. They said, you, this was told to you in confessional, you can't report this, but here's what you can do. And in the court documents, you actually can see this long litany of here's everything the bishop actually tried to do to get that man or his wife to confess in a way that would have consequences for them. Ultimately, it didn't work. And there's some special things in that case that made it even harder, but those aren't the bishop's fault. Yeah. Um, What's next? Yeah, so that's that's so, kind of my list of. So those extra. are seven. Let's let's run through those. Yeah. real quick, just to summarize them. Um, the helpline, disfellowshipping, gender specific leaders for young women, the member number system, existing associations. You go to church with your neighbors, being sustained, and being called. Cool. And so, not saying that no other religion has any of those, but the fact that we like that those are not required. So we're yeah. going above and beyond what is required, which is with those things. Yeah. Whether that. And a lot of those aren't in place because of abuse or they can be for abuse, but they sure do help. Absolutely. There are churches that have a a piece of it here and a piece of it there, but no one has all seven of those in place in the same way that we do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we have lower numbers. Yeah. That's my claim, at least. And hopefully we can get them lower. Oh, my goodness. Let's zero them out. The the last little bit I want to talk about, because this question always comes up, is how can we do better at detecting abuse that's currently going on, Because right? this is where people's hearts really go. I don't think folks are as worried about how do we get a 55-year-old to talk about the abuse that happened when they're seven, right? Yeah. That is a thing. And that person probably could have a lot more healing in their life if they could figure some of that out. But what folks are really worried about is how do we catch a case where a kid is actively being abused today? And how do you, how do you stop that? And I think most adults in or out of our church, if a child came up to them and said, hey, look, here's what my grandpa is doing to me, that adult would move heaven and earth to help this kid out, right? But kids don't communicate in direct ways like adults do. Like, Kurt, you and I set this meeting up. We exchanged messages of be here at this time and here's the address and here's what we're doing. And this very direct, here's the information I need you to know kind of conversation and adults forget. I've never heard my eight-year-old do that, by the way. <laughs> no, no 14-year-old is going to set an appointment with the bishop and yeah. sit down and say, well, Bishop, I've called you here today because I need to disclose my sexual abuse to you. This is not what teenagers do. Most of the time, what happens is kids and teens disclose on accident, meaning they say something that's weird and the adults around them go, weird? I'm going to ask some follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. Here's the danger is, and it's probably men more than women on this too, who end up in this awkward position of, I don't want to ask a follow-up question on that, 
right? I don't want to come across as the creeper, right? Exactly. And 14-year-old just says something like, my uncle told me the funniest joke when he was in bed with me. And then blah, blah, blah. Here's the joke, right? The wise adult needs to go. Excuse me? (laughs) Wait a minute. What? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So kids disclose that way on accident. Um, Victims, kids and adults are absolutely notorious. And I fell in this camp too of telling a story and taking it back. And that's not them lying. That's them getting scared. Mm -hmm. And so a kid in that scenario, my uncle told me the funniest joke when he was in bed with me. Adult asks the question, oh, no, no, no. He was sitting on the edge of my bed and he was just there for three seconds and then he left. Well, that may or may not be the truth, Mm -hmm. right? The adult needs to file that conversation away in their head and keep their ears open in a different way around that kid just to start to listen for what actually is going on with this kid and this uncle and how much is he in their house and do I need to be worried? Because older children and teenagers, especially what they do, they give you a tiny little piece of information and then they see how bad you are going to freak out. Mm -hmm. And if you freak out in the wrong way, and my goodness, there's no way to say exactly, here's exactly how you should respond because a teenager's definition of an adult freaking out is going to be 20 different things. Right. But the kid will put out a tiny crumb of information and if they're scared of your reaction or they don't like it, they will take it back in an instant Mm -hmm. and provide you with a completely plausible story of what actually is going on. And your job, adult, is to like, okay, in that moment, you can buy that story, but you'd better file that away and start listening to that kid differently. Yeah. I think one of my, I mean, and I probably perpetuated this somehow, but when I think about my kids, their number one fear is just getting in trouble, yeah. you know, and, you know, I try not to shame them and yeah. I can know how destructive that can be. But in the day, like if they think, oh, I'm going, I'm going to get in trouble, I'm going to back up and how can, yeah. what do you need to hear from me so that this conversation ends, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and abuse victims in childhood and in adolescence and in adulthood do that. Yeah. There's actually research that says there's a certain percentage, it's somewhere between 20 and 30%, I can't remember, Certain percentage of kids will deny their abuse even when there's photographic evidence of it. Holy cow. That's not me. That didn't happen. This is a fake picture. And it's the loving adults around them, their mother or someone who is trying to get them to say, and they they will never admit that it happened. Yeah. Yeah. That number goes down a lot in adolescence and it goes down a lot in adulthood. But denial after an initial disclosure is what you should expect. Wow. Wow. And so this is what I keep coming back. You know, in the leadership context, this is Mm -hmm. the biggest point and understanding I have as as a church leader. And we talked, you talked about the study, I think in our first interview that the healthy development of a child requires three adult Mm -hmm. mentors other than their parents. Is that a good way to frame it, right? Yeah. And when I step back and understand that from a, and then see the structure of the church we have, we think we've got some great people in place. We've got a bishop, we've got a youth leader, we've got, you know, you can go down the list, right? And so- you know, if I was a bishop again, to stand in front of those parents, those parents of youth and say, listen, for the healthy development of your child, they need three adult mentors that's not you. What's the plan? I'm happy to participate in that. Yeah. We've got a, a long bench of people that, so what's your plan? What are you going to do, right? Because we just want to like huddle our child in and yeah. be like, you're not going to youth activities anymore. That guy's weird or, you yeah. know, and of course we want to be sensitive to any discomfort or mm-hmm. unsafety you feel, but- What's the plan? You know, and and we're offering you a structure that mm-hmm. can really help your child develop positively, right? Yeah. Is that 
pa- what comes to mind? Yeah, parents both under and overreact to abuse issues, and it's part of the problem. Parents underreact when a kid has actually made a disclosure and we completely miss it because we don't know what we're looking for. And we overreact when we say, like there's some churches that make a rule that say, in nursery, no children are allowed to sit on an adult's lap ever, too close to abuse. Well, nursery age children sometimes need to sit in an adult's lap, mm-hmm. right? And so that's an overreaction. And now this kid doesn't have... A two-year-old doesn't have what a two-year-old developmentally needs. They fell down. They need to sit in this sweet sister's lap to calm down, mm-hmm. right? And it's the same thing with teenagers. Yes, the threat of abuse is real, but you shelter your kids away and they're missing out on a huge part of the structure of their development that needs to happen. And if they can't find those three adults in their life that are outside of their parents that are helping them grow up, if they can't find that organically, they're going to find it online. They're going to find it in a peer, even a peer one year older than them can provide a little bit of that for a kid and like, okay, adults, you just had an opportunity for this to be the deacon's advisor leader and you wouldn't allow that. And so now your 14 year old is looking up to their 15 year old cousin to lead them. And that's a problem. Right. Yeah. And and just this concept of mentorship is so crucial in the life of a youth, a developing child. And so- it's so easy to like just sort of step back and say, well, that's a cute idea, Kurt, but mm. you know, even if we can protect one from abuse, yeah. like I'm not even going to engage on a, on a deeper level with that youth because I don't want to come across as something yeah. strange or getting too close. And so I feel like we do ourselves a disservice where we retreat completely and, and follow these rules so strictly yeah. to the point that nothing's happening there. We might as well just cancel the youth program, yeah. right? And that's where, as I have engaged at these youth callings where I'm thinking, okay, what can I do to gain that consent from not only the child, but from the parents mm-hmm. of being like, do I have permission to be a mentor here? Yeah. And what can we do to create a relationship between me and the parents so that you feel comfortable when we're taking them to the museum or yes. doing these things, right? And yeah. and really engaging that rather than just being like, oh, let's just stare at each other from across the room so that no abuse happens, yeah. right? I mean, one of the really sad things I think is parents... Any good parent wants to protect their kid from abuse. Bubble wrapping your kid and putting them away from every other possible adult, you're just exposing them to a different possibility for abuse because kids still need that. So now they're turning to their school teachers. They're turning to sources online. They're turning to people you don't know at all to get it. Right. Because you can't stop that developmental train from going down the tracks. Yeah. And that's the thing, especially in an internet age where they're like, Okay, I'm developing and I'm having some more and more questions about sexual stuff mm-hmm. and I don't feel safe going to my parents. I don't have any other mentors, so I'll go online. Yeah. And then, you know, that it starts another disaster. Y- you and I talked about this last time. It's so unfair to put this expectation on teenagers of like, hey, you have to follow the law of chastity. We know it. That's completely countercultural. Very, very few people at your school are even interested in knowing what that means. But we have this expectation of you and now we're never going to talk to you about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like that'd be a terrible thing. They need conversations about that. Yeah. They just do. And then we get sort of a a bad rap when they do get in an appropriate relationship of marriage and they don't have any background or understanding yeah. of sexual relationships. And they think, oh, it's because of the church. Well, yeah, but when you were a youth, the problem was we didn't want to go too far that way, you know? Yeah. So it's a, such a balance, but it's a wrestle worth engaging with. It know? is. Yeah, it is for sure. All right, I'm going to ask you a, a sort of left field yeah. and we can take this out. If, if you, but 
you know, we, we're, we're big on just exploring this concept of mentorship, not mm-hmm. only with, with youth, but in elders quorum mm-hmm. or early society, right? I, I think people just need, people need people. They need yep. community, people who will be there when they need support, right? Yeah. Is there anything with, and I'm not too familiar with the big brothers, big sisters, mm. but it seems like they've been around a long time, yeah. but they don't have a ton of lawsuits going on. And it is very much a one-to-one type of thing. So yeah. do you know what is happening there? I mean, it's a great question. I actually would love to do research into that further, but I think their setup is it's mostly single moms whose kids are in that program. And the moms are also very, very, there's a component for the mothers. To be right? involved in it. Yeah. Okay. So it's not just random guy comes and picks their kid up. It's they're building a whole community of support around that mom and her kid so that she isn't like wedged out of the conversation. It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, this kid needs a, a male mentor. Mom, you're nothing. Mm-hmm. It's how do we support them as a family and here's one piece the kid needs right yeah i've even thought about i need to reach out to them and just get it i would mm-hmm. love to hear you know what what are your your list of things that you do to, to yeah. create safety there because because they are compared not to who, the boy scouts yeah. they've avoided some litigation or or i don't know let's really look a little bit yeah. closer you know? yeah they so. are not who you who comes to mind when you think of yeah. giant abuse scandals yeah so they figured out that mentorship thing so have we covered it all anything else comp- that's that, what i have yeah you know i'm just thinking you know, social media, bless mm-hmm. its heart. I wish it went away tomorrow. But, yeah. you know, anytime you speak about these things or put like, I'm just trying to, I want to be so empathetic towards that mm-hmm. person who maybe is a victim of sexual abuse, yeah. who did, like you said, that 5% number, those are people there. Yeah. I mean, those are real victims. Yeah. And it breaks my heart that that happened. And so they see something like this online, this discussion, and they interpret it, they were dismissing it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, background checks, baloney. Mm-hmm. I just want to find solutions that work. And I'm not convinced yeah. that background checks are that. And so anything else you'd say to that? Like any, yeah. what's that email that I'm going to get that, yeah. that, that we didn't cover? Mandated reporting is the thing that comes here. If every adult in the church would, could consider themselves a mandated reporter, that would solve the problem. And that didn't solve the problem either, unfortunately. Let me back up a tiny bit, sort of philosophically. Adults are busy and complicated and want this to be simplified. And there is nothing, there's no bigger impulse that you see in the history of talking about child abuse over the last 50 years than we want to know what to do in order to stop this. And through the different kind of decades or half decades, different ideas come up as the popular idea. This thing is going to solve it. And for a while, it was mandated reporting, meaning So I'm a mental health therapist. If a child discloses something to me in a session that makes a reasonable person wonder if abuse is happening, then I call CPS and report Mm -hmm. it. And I don't have a choice about that. And I do have done that regularly. Here's the problem about why that also causes difficulties. In states where mandated reporting didn't used to exist, they pass a law and now a certain number of people or Maybe sometimes all adults in the state are now considered mandated reporting, reports for abuse go up tenfold. However, actual abuse that's found, the number stays the same. So what that means is your average child protection services worker now has 10 cases to wade through when they used to have one, right? So they have to work 10 times as hard to find the actual kids who are being abused and those kids suffer longer. So yeah, does mandated reporting work? Well, 
sure, sort of. But you also need to understand the trade-off there, that this is actually making things harder for some kids who are being abused because it takes those things longer to get found. There is no perfect system or practice that says this is what solves sexual abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that we live in mortality. It's a fallen world. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, these things are going to happen, but we count ourselves among the ranks that are the front lines of saying, if you got an idea of how to improve this, let's hear it. Yeah. And I want to consider it and see what works. But, you know, it's, there's just no perfect yeah. solution. You might Other get- than Jesus and right. the eternities. <laughs> Thank right. goodness. You might get emails from people who say, absolutely, like zero cases is the only number of cases of abuse that is acceptable. And emotionally, like that's where I am. Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to be abused. However, even if we had zero cases, we can never act like we do. Because the minute you start acting like, well, there's zero cases of abuse here, now it's whack-a-mole and a new one has popped up. Yeah, A new version of the same old tricks is getting in play again. Yeah. So we always have to act like it's a possibility. Yeah, because 0% would mean we'd let our guard down. Yep. Right, And we can't do that. Yeah. Absolutely. So if people want... You have slides that you've presented if yes. or whatnot. Can we make those available? Absolutely, okay. we can. Let me also say this. I have done this research on the Boy Scout data. It is the only data available that I am aware of that where you can compare the abuse rates of people of different faiths. Mm-hmm. I would love to replicate that research with a different data set. Oh, cool. I've never been able to find one. If anyone has any idea of an available place. I could get my hands on some data. People from many churches and you can see their abuse rates. I would love to have a second source that says, yep, about 5%. Yeah, really helpful. So my email is at the end of those slides or jenroach at comcast.net. Perfect. Would love to hear from people. And then did you write a recent article somewhere about this? Um, I know you've written other articles, but we'll link to those as well. Um, My most two recent have been published by Public Square magazine, and you can find those online. There's one about the Boy Scout research, goes more into depth on that, and then one about the unique things in our church that help fight abuse, kind of like you and I talked through here today, but you can find that there too. I have a couple articles in Deseret about it. I don't know. Google my name and abuse. (laughs) Super fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, just to wrap up, if you're a room full of bishops, really Mm -hmm. study presidents, youth leaders, Mm -hmm. uh, what final advice would you give to them? Follow the procedures of the church. Follow the procedures for callings. Follow the procedures for people attend with their neighbors unless there is an absolute reason why they can't. You make exceptions and you open a child up to a risk you don't even understand. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. Remember, the Jody Moore presentation about youth and mental health is waiting for you at leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us 
by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.